If you're regular here, you know, we've been working through the book of Luke this year. However, um, we're going to take a brief hiatus on that for the next five, six weeks or so. I'm kind of, still kind of planning that out because um, I want to spend some time. You know, it's Christmas, in case you weren't aware. Now's the time to be shopping for Christmas presents if you haven't done so already. Um, but I want us to spend some time focusing on the birth of Jesus. Um, I've mentioned this before, but if you grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, uh, you may not be familiar with the word Advent, but it's one that I heard constantly growing up. I grew up in a different tradition, um, in, in Methodist uh, tradition. And Advent is a word in, with Latin roots, and it means uh, coming or preparation or appearing. Um, but it's a time of year, Christmas, where we think about the birth of Jesus. And as believers, now we also think about the second coming of Christ. Um, in Christianity, this word is used specifically when thinking about that, about the return of Jesus. And this time of year when we focus on the birth of Jesus, I want us to look today at, at the promise of Jesus throughout Scripture. Uh, in this season of Advent, recognized by more liturgical traditions, this doesn't start till next week. Um, and we're going to have a more uh, Christmassy message next week. But in preparation for that, I felt led by the Spirit for us to spend some time today being reminded of of what God has done and what Jesus has done so that we can better appreciate his birth. I read this, this uh, quote actually this morning by um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. For me, I really identified with that. I know that I'm a believer. I know that Jesus has, has covered my sin, but I know I also struggle with sin. And so for me to be thinking forward to the perfection that's going to come on Jesus's return um, really kind of brings a new light to the idea of Christmas. As we're all aware, Thanksgiving has ended. And when Black Friday begins, there's a flip, a switch that gets flipped in most of our brains where, uh, and I heard somebody talking about this yesterday, how ironic it is that we spend a whole day talking about how thankful we are and then we go the next day and buy a ton of materialistic things that we may or may not need. Um, I don't know if this Black Friday was that way. It, it looked like maybe that wasn't going to be the trend this year. But my point is, is that we are already making a shift in our minds. And so I wanted to capture this moment this morning as that switch is being flipped in your mind as we begin to think about Christmas to kind of give that some, some, some direction. Um, next week, we're going to begin a series of four messages following the same scripture and theme as our children's curriculum. And I'm really excited about that. For me, I feel like it may be a little more difficult to write those messages, but I want to do this for a very specific reason. I want us to be very intentional about the message of Christmas, and I want to create a space for us to learn with our children. When we do that, when we learn together, it creates this special opportunity for us to talk about the meaning of Christmas and why we're celebrating what we're celebrating. And so I hope and pray that as we have these special opportunities with our kids, both here at the church and at home, that their hearts will be prepared and drawn to a saving faith in Jesus. Because that's the point of all of this, right? That's why Jesus came, is so that we can know him and have a relationship with him. So why not, during Christmas, spend some very intentional time with our kids and with other people in our lives that don't know Jesus, thinking about that. Today's message is from a passage in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, and we we're going to read this in a minute, and you're going to go, well, this has nothing to do with Christmas, but just hang in there, we'll get there in a minute. In this church, people were teaching that resurrection was impossible, and therefore Jesus' resurrection wasn't possible either. And so Paul writes this letter to address this issue, because if resurrection isn't real, the basis of our faith is groundless. We have, we have no faith if Jesus didn't raise himself from the dead. So Paul raises the alarm, calling out this false teaching. 
And in his letter about the resurrection of Jesus, he summarizes what we believe about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Oh, I was saying, so Paul writes this letter, right? And I wanted to use this today because it's going to kind of frame for us um, what Jesus came to do. Jesus' purpose was to dream his people, to bring them back into relationship with God. And he did that by being born of a virgin, living a sinless life. He was crucified, buried, and then raised himself to life. And then he ascended back into heaven with the promise that he's going to come back one day. Right? This is the basis of our faith. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 22. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 through 22. So Paul says this. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So there's three points I want to bring out of this passage this morning. The first is that Jesus is the first fruit. He's the perfect lamb. The second is that he's the death and the the resurrection. Both death and resurrection come through man. And then number three is that Adam's choices brought death, but Jesus' choices brought eternal life. So let's talk about this first one. Jesus is the first fruit and the perfect lamb. When Paul speaks of first fruit, he's referring to the the perfection of the person of Jesus. The first fruits were the required sacrifices in the Old Testament. Whether it be an animal or the actual fruit of the harvest, whether that be a grain or fruit or vegetables, whatever they grew, the first of that was to be set aside for God. And those sacrifices had to be unblemished, right? It wasn't a sacrifice if you went and took the funkiest apple that you had and said, here, God, here's my my offering. You could do that, but it didn't mean anything. They wanted, God wanted the first three. He wanted our best, right? And we see this concept most clearly played out in in the Exodus story of Passover. So God sends Moses to set Israel free, right? We're familiar with this story. God sends Moses into Egypt, tells Pharaoh, let my people go. Time and time again, Pharaoh says no. God does a lot of miracles through Moses. And after these many signs of God's power, ultimately one thing convinced Pharaoh to let the people go. And that was the death of the firstborn. And it is what it took to free God's people from slavery. If you look at Exodus, Exodus chapter 11, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, I will bring more than one plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. He will let you go and he will drive you out of there. And then picking up in verse 4 and 5, so Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go go throughout Egypt and every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the servant girl who is at the grindstones as well as the firstborn of the livestock. So God's using this moment to foreshadow what Jesus is one day going to do for all of us. In this foreshadowing, he requires a very specific sacrifice. He tells them they must provide an unblemished lamb or goat. An unblemished lamb is what protected them from death and what protects us from death. If you read on in Exodus chapter 12, verses 5 through 7, he says, You must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male, And you may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You're to keep it until the 14th day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. And they must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. And then in verse 12 and 13, it says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. And the blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this blood of the unblemished lamb that's on the doorpost of the homes is what protected God's people from his wrath, his judgment, and their death. And without the blood, there's no protection from the death. And, and I want to point out too, that when Jesus is crucified, what are they celebrating? Passover, right? This moment. I, I love that our children's curriculum this, this week has been talking about how God works behind the scenes, right? And God was doing that this week in my life. He does it every week in your life. And we see in this story all the way back in the days of Moses that God is working behind the scenes to redeem his people. It was a long process, but God did it. And so Jesus is that perfect unblemished lamb of God that now his blood that covers us is what allows God's wrath and judgment to pass over us. We see in the book of John that uh, Jesus goes to be baptized by the John the Baptist and he's welcomed by John the Baptist with a very specific phrase. If you look at John chapter 1 verse 29, it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Interestingly, John's the only person that calls Jesus the Lamb of God, which I think is so unique. God sent John to prepare the way, and so he's telling the people, this is the Passover Lamb. When John sees Jesus, he knows instantly that this is the man who can do what all mankind needs. Jesus is coming to fix the problem that's plagued mankind since the creation. And this is where Paul goes to the next uh, passage in, in that in verse 21 he says for since death came through a man the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man and this brings us to point number two that death and resurrection come through man we, we talk about this a lot in the last couple of years but God warned Adam about eating fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and that it would bring death and Adam shared that warning with Eve but they chose together to disobey God God warned Adam about the consequences of disobeying. If you look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God says, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for on that day you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then this is the point where the serpent tricks Eve and Adam and says, but God says, you, um, he says because he says, you won't surely die. And we see that in Genesis 3, 4. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. You'd think that we would learn Right, that we would hear this lie again and again and again and we would become clear to it, but it still deceives us. We assume that God will only accept people into his kingdom if they are good. And the problem with that theory is that a sinful person cannot be in the presence of a holy God. And we can work as hard as we want to to try to be good, but we can't be good enough. We can't be God. And so we're born into these consequences of Adam and Eve's choice. Adam disobeyed God and received what God said that he would receive. Look at verses 17 and 19 in Genesis 3. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat the bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. So while Adam and Eve did gain the knowledge that they sought, it didn't bring them closer to God. It separated them from God, and it made their lives immensely more difficult. 
I thought about this this week, and I don't have any way to qualify this at all. It's just something I would love to have a conversation with you guys about at some point. But did God ever intend for Adam and Eve to die? Or was that a consequence of that sin? I don't know. Something to think about. But what it did do, what we do know it did, is it separated them from God. And not only did their lives get more painful, but now they are going to experience death, and they experience it much quicker than they think. Because Adam's sin led to death. We see the first person die not long after Adam and Eve's decision and judgment. Not long in terms of the length of their life. If you look at verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out in the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Death happened very quickly. And, and if you think about this story and you think about what caused that, it's that Cain and Abel offered sacrifices to God. And God accepted Abel's and did not accept Cain's. This idea of sacrifice is permeated all through Scripture. And this separation from God that was the result of sin strained the relationship between God and His people. And the sin that overtakes our hearts is quickly revealed in Cain. Because he gives an offering that's not pleasing to the Lord. And in retaliation to that, instead of dealing with the issue of the relationship with him and God, he kills his brother out of jealousy. We see the true consequences of Adam and Eve's disobedience for the first time in this story. And even more heart-wrenching is that we're powerless to do anything about it even to this day. But God knew this and he had a plan in motion even before creating Adam and Eve. God would send his one and only son into the world so that it might be saved, right? First, or John chapter 3 verse 16, everybody knows this one. Y'all say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus gave his life to be the sacrifice that our sin required. He came to fix what was broken. And Adam's choices brought death, and Jesus' choices brought life. What we're going to be celebrating all month is the birth of Jesus. And we've been studying all year as a church who the person of Jesus is and what he was about. Jesus lived and loved in a way that was unknown to the world around them, both then and today. And although Jesus knew what it would cost him, he chose to come anyway because he loves us. Because Jesus comes for us in the middle of our sin to forgive us. He sees us where we are. He sees us in the middle of our sin and still loves us. I've referenced this a lot recently too, Romans 5, 8 through 10. But God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him, through him from wrath? For, if we were, um, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? We've seen all through Jesus' ministry that as he's trying to reveal to the world who he is and the nature of God's heart, that the religious leaders are fighting back against Jesus over and over and over. And even though Jesus came to save us from our sins, they were more interested in keeping their own power than they were in being saved. They were more interested in keeping their way of life and doing things the way they wanted than they were in the salvation that God was trying to provide. They couldn't see that Jesus was the perfect unblemished lamb. We see the results of that in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 through 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
For as Jonah was in the belly of a huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this great generation and condemn it, because they repented at Jonah's preaching, and look, something greater than Jonah is here. I want us to, to think about that passage for just a moment. If you're not familiar with the story of Jonah, we all know about Jonah in the, in the belly of the fish, right? That's the part of the story that we remember. What we often don't know or don't remember is that the people of Nineveh, Nineveh was the capital, I believe, of Babylon. You heard of the Babylonian exile where Babylon came in and conquered Israel, killed most of them and those that were still allowed to live were brought into Babylon, many of them living in Nineveh. And then they're released from that captivity. They come back to Jerusalem and God tells the prophet Jonah to go and preach the message of salvation to the people in Nineveh, to the people that had slaughtered all of Israel. That's why Jonah didn't want to go. But Jonah finally did. We know the story. He finally gets there. He preaches. The people receive the word. They repent of their sins and they're made right with God. And Jonah's mad about it. So Jesus is telling this story to the religious leaders. And he's saying that even the men of Nineveh that Jonah preached to heard the message, and yet you will not. Jesus is trying to help them understand what's going on. And even though many didn't believe his message, Jesus still chose to fulfill his mission, even though these Pharisees are fighting against him. Jesus came to do what Adam could not do, to obey God fully. And through his obedience, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Jesus chose to suffer so that we could be forgiven. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, it says, From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and then be raised on the third day. So after teaching and the healing and all the things we've been learning about all year, Jesus is arrested. He's brought before Pilate where the crowds demand that he be crucified. And then after giving into the crowds, Pilate orders that Jesus be crucified. And so he's on the cross, Luke chapter 23, verse 32 through 37. His two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. And when they arrived at the place called the skull, they were crucified with him there, along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others, let him save himself, if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him and they came offering him sour wine. And he said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. I want us to see that even while Jesus is being crucified, while he's being ridiculed, he still loves us. He still loved the people in the crowd. We see this in how Jesus responds to the two men who are being crucified next to him going on in verse 39 through 43. It says, then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered rebuking him. Don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we are getting back what we deserve for the things that we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, truly, I tell you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Even amidst the agonizing pain that is crucifixion, Jesus still loves his people. His death proved to many that he was the son of God. 
Right after that story, verse 44 through 48, it says, And it's now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three, because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God, saying, This man really was righteous. All the crowds that had gathered for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, went home, striking their chest. That striking their chest was a sign of grief. For many that were there that day, it seemed that all was lost. It seemed that this man that had been, they'd been learning from and following for forever was gone. The death of Jesus wasn't the end of the story. Jesus came to conquer both sin and death and did so by raising himself from the dead. Verse 30, Luke 24, verse 36 through 49. As they were saying these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled, he asked them, and why do, you doubt, why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they were, but they were, while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And he told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. Church, here's what I want us to think about. As we're entering the Christmas season, it's so easy to get caught up in who am I buying what and did I get the right kind of gift and where are we going, what's our plans and is this part of the family going to be okay if we go visit this part of the family. All of that stuff is important, but none of it is important as what we're here to celebrate. And my hope, my prayer for all of us is we're thinking through all of that stuff that the, the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus would be the most important thing that we think about. That that would be the most conversation that we have. That as we are interacting with our children, as we're sitting down, I know some of you guys do the, the Christmas ornament things where you read scripture every night and you put the ornament on the tree. Or, or if you're doing your family devotion or as you're feeding supper and questions about Christmas and the the things that we're doing, you're putting up your Christmas tree or hanging Christmas lights, that all of it would point back to the gospel, to understanding that what we're celebrating is not just that a man was born of a virgin a really long time ago, and that was the end of the story, but that that birth is the celebration of what God has been doing behind the scenes since the creation of man, that that's what Christmas is about. Yes, we're celebrating his birth, but the birth is not the big deal. The birth is the fact that he died for us and that he rose from the grave and that he was the sacrifice that was required to cover our sins so that we could be in the presence of God. That's the gift, is that Jesus gave his life for us. It's so easy to get caught up in the busyness of the season, but we have to be intentional. And if we are intentional, 
the result of that is going to be the people in our lives getting to hear the gospel maybe for the first time. It's going to mean that our children are going to hear the gospel maybe for the first time. I've shared with you guys before, Luke gave his life to Christ on Christmas Eve one time. It was the greatest gift ever, right? And it happened because we sat down as a family and we read the Christmas story. And then we talked about what it meant in the moment while we're doing Christmas. We talked about Jesus. We talked about what Jesus did for us. And it might seem a little weird, a little unfamiliar to talk about somebody's death when we're having this moment of celebration. But that death is what allows us to celebrate. It's that death and that resurrection that gives us life. It gives us hope. It gives us love. It gives us joy. It gives us peace. If you grew up in a liturgical setting and you did the Advent candle lighting, there's four candles and that's what they represent. Love, joy, peace. I just said it. Hope. Thank you. You light those candles each week to remind you that all of this celebration is about what Jesus did for us, not just that he was born. So this, this Christmas, as we go through these next four messages, doing them intentionally along with our children, the goal is, is that as we learn about the birth of Jesus, the, the, the next four messages are going to talk about the angels and their perspective of what's happening, of them telling the good news to God's people through the process of Jesus being born. The hope is, is that we can also tell our kids and the people in our lives that we can proclaim the goodness of God and what he was doing through his son that was born. Okay? So I'm excited about what God's got coming for us this next couple of weeks. Carrie's going to preach next week, uh, and I'm excited about that. So let's close in prayer and, uh, and worship, and, uh, and we'll go on with our day. Let's pray. Holy Father, I ask that as we move forward in this Christmas season, that you would help us to be very intentional with our time and the message that we preach through our words and through our actions. Father, I ask that you would prepare the hearts of the kids in our lives and the adults in our lives, that you would prime them to receive your word. And Father, that you would make it real clear to us as we're in those moments when we're to share and when we're to not. Father, I ask that all of the anxiety that comes with thinking about sharing the gospel, Father, that you would help that just fade away. And what we would feel instead is excitement and joy and love for the people that you've placed in our lives. That, Father, that this story wouldn't just be a story that we're supposed to sell, but it'd be the uh, feel like the best story ever that it is. And, Father, that you would give us joy and excitement to share that story. Jesus, we ask that as we close today, that your spirit would be with us and that you would guide us and you would teach us about how good you are as we think about you in this Christmas season. Jesus, I ask these things in your name. Amen.